to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with the Charles A. Dana Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience, F. Scott Crayley. Now, Professor Crayley's laboratory research is focused on neuroendocrine control of ingestive behavior, in particular, the physiological mechanisms which eating elicits drinking behavior. Professor Crayley has also written two books and has a recent paper regarding the benefits and risks associated with the use of psychiatric medications. Students in Professor Crayley's lab work to conduct experiments in which drugs are used to manipulate the neurochemical mechanisms in rats to study their involvement in eating, drinking, and other behaviors. More than 25 Colgate undergraduate students have been co-authors of published journal articles with Professor Crayley, conducting hands-on experiments at Colgate and reporting the results. Professor Crayley earned his bachelor's degree at the University of Notre Dame and his master's and PhD at Johns Hopkins University. Professor Crayley, welcome to 13. Oh, thanks, Dan. You did a nice job covering that. Oh, good. Anything important I left out or? No, not at all. All right. Good. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there's some, a couple there's some bad stuff hidden, but <laughs> let it rest. Um, I think it's best to kick things off almost like on the ground floor. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask, kind of, if you could talk a little bit about what exactly is neuroscience, what does that cover? Is it anything and everything that has to do with the brain or are, are neuroscientists looking at specific things? It's, it's really the former. It, it really encompasses uh, such a broad, broad range of disciplines that are interested in anything from behavior to cellular processes, not only within the brain, but within the body and everything in between. And it's so broad that people might be calling themselves neuroscientists, be card-carrying neuroscientists in the Society for Neuroscience, who actually would have difficulty reading in some of the areas that other neuroscientists are publishing. Uh, Society for Neuroscience began, I think, around 1970, um, went to one of the early meetings, and there were a couple thousand people, and now that, that meeting, you can easily find upwards of 20,000 people attending, which oh, wow. makes it a little unwieldy. Now much of your early research delves into the brain's mechanisms related to eating and drinking. So I'm curious if you can just talk about maybe some of the highlights of, of your work, your earlier work and um, what you were looking for. Yeah, well, I was looking to have a good time studying a problem that interested me or fascinated me. Um, for whatever reason, I, I always kind of wondered why people chose the sort of foods they did to eat, why they ate as much as they did. And um, in, in thinking about that and realizing that eating for humans and most mammals is so often occurring along with drinking fluids that I became interested in studying both um, and just gravitated toward problems that I found were using new approaches that um, seemed to open the door for studying an area that had not been probed. I mean, behavioral neuroscience is still a relatively young discipline. So there's plenty of room for young scientists, e even today, to, to find problems to study that no one else has touched. 
and to make contributions as, as a young scientist. Um, and, and from then, oddly enough, um, after earning my PhD, I, I looked to work with a group of people who I would enjoy working with, who also happened to be studying similar problems. And I hooked up with uh, a, a group in the Department of Psychiatry at Cornell Medical College who were interested in physiological controls of eating and um, were very sharp critics of their own work. They had very high standards and they were a lot of fun. I met, I met the leader of the lab, uh, who's Irish, at a couple of meetings and, uh, and um, realized I could have a great time working with them. Um, and it was a turning point in my career, not just studying the problems we were studying, but also being mentored for four years by a, a leader of a lab and some other scientists in the lab who gave me, I don't know, some maturity and skills that when I, I came to Colgate, I, I was able to teach and still hit the ground running in a laboratory setting. Hmm. So it was kind of a mix of interest, you know, interest in topics, having also finding that it was fun to work in a laboratory doing experiments and working with people who were very bright and who had fun doing it. Hmm. That, that mix uh, was very important to me. Is there an experiment from, you know, those early years that you're, you're most proud of or that you found uh, to be the most um, illuminating with what you found? Yeah, there, there, was, there was work that was a turning point. Um, we were doing research at during that postdoc at Cornell, studying um, peripheral nerves and their role in eating. So for example, imagine a peripheral nerve taking information from the gastrointestinal tract to the brain, conveying a signal related to feeling satisfied during a meal. Mm. We're doing that, focusing on that sort of work and some of the work involved creating uh, or sectioning peripheral nerves, cutting them to cut those signals from the gut. And to my surprise, um, the animal, the rats that we were performing these surgeries on um, were difficult to keep alive despite these very small lesions to a, a nerve called the vagus nerve in the peripheral nervous system. And <clears throat> upon observing them, I noticed that they simply, they seem to be becoming dehydrated because they weren't drinking. Mm. They weren't consuming enough water to survive <clears throat> unless uh, I, for, I made injections of fluids to keep them alive. And that for me opened the, the door to the question, what is it about eating that might cause drinking at the same time? Why do people drink beverages with meals? There, there are are likely to be physiological controls of that and brain processes that organize that kind of relationship between eating and drinking. And that happened to me in my last postdoc year so that when I came to Colgate, I brought that problem with me and it set the stage for probably my first 20 years of research at Colgate. Um, so I was able to study a problem that was new and make a contribution by using some research strategies that also had not been used. So I, I was very fortunate um, 
to take advantage of an unexpected opportunity. And, and that's a common story in, in science generally, you know, opportunism when something unexpected falls in your lap. Um, if you're a fool, you don't even see it. And if I guess if you're a dub, twice the fool, you see it, but don't take advantage of it. So uh, I'd have got lucky twice. It can be said of a lot of things. That's why there's a podcast now. <laughs> so you study you you know for, for a lot of that work you you are using rats to study and i'm yeah. curious like how much can you compare and contrast you know the the brain functions or the stomach functions of these rats to that of a human being yeah that's a great question and uh the the answer in, in the case of studying eating and drinking is pretty straightforward that the rat gastrointestinal tract and peripheral organs must be organized sim in ways similar to humans because rats eat the same foods that humans eat. Rats have preferences for salty foods and sweet foods and fatty foods, um, just the way most of us do and get ourselves in trouble with. Um, so it's, it's somewhat easy to justify arguing that whatever you learn about brain and nervous system in the rat in relationship to, let's say, eating and drinking, will teach you something about how things work in humans. It's not going to teach you everything mm -hmm. by far, um, but it can give you hints as to when you get the opportunity to do research in humans to, um, to know what to look for, what kinds of targets to aim for in research. Point you in the right direction. Yeah, right. There are strategies and techniques you can use using animals in research that you couldn't ever justify using in humans. Mm -hmm. So some of the approaches we use with surgery and manipulating brain and peripheral processes with drugs uh, would be unethical, unethical to, to do in human research. And that kind of is a good segue to the next question where I, I was curious about how research methods related to brain function, digestive systems, how have, how have they really evolved since the 70s? Yeah. Uh, I, I think the way to answer that question without taking a couple of hours and revealing how poorly informed I am is to <laughs> focus on my own areas of research. Sure. So that within the study of brain and behavior, um, one, one important change that's perhaps most recent is the advent or development of modern brain neuroimaging techniques. And, and that began essentially in the 1970s when it became possible to, in awake behaving humans, um, measure certain types of physiological events in the brain and measure how they change across time. Up, up until the advent of those technologies, there were ways to measure brain activity in, in rats, but there weren't right ways to do that in humans, to measure brain directly. The techniques used in rats were invasive. That is, you had to do surgery in their brain, typically to implant measuring electrodes, that sort of thing. And the neuroimaging techniques in humans were non-invasive. Um, you, you needed expensive machinery, um, but you didn't need surgery. Uh, another advance 
around exactly that same time that was important for rat research, monkey, animal research generally, and also research in humans, was the techniques for mapping the chemistry of the brain came to be developed. And the first, um, you, you're likely, perhaps most of our listeners are likely to have heard of the neurotransmitter dopamine um, associated most often with pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first neurotransmitter, the first important brain chemical to communicate among neurons, the first chemical to be mapped so that with those maps of where you found dopamine neurons in the brain, you could target um, research tactics to alter those specific chemicals in those specific regions of the brain. That really opened up um, the ability to study, to ask questions like, how does a specific neurochemical in the brain function in regard regard to behavior or or other processes? Hmm. I would say those two things were major, major advances. Interesting. And Colgate recently announced a new uh, Robert H. N. Ho Mind Brain Behavior Initiative. And that initiative includes forthcoming renovations to Olin Hall, um, which will house Colgate's Brain Recording and Cognitive Science Lab, um, an integrated molecular genetics and genomics hub. Um, And that's going to also include technology for DNA and RNA sequencing um, and uh, a human interaction lab um, to host research uh, into leadership and its traits and competencies and motives of those who lead. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. And I'm curious how you see that um, initiative impacting the work that you do on campus. You know, it's not going to have an impact on me specifically because I'm retiring very soon. In fact, oh. they've already they've already hired my replacement. Really? Well, congratulations. Oh, yeah, they couldn't wait for me to leave. So they, they figured, <laughs> let's, hire, let's hire someone better than him now. Make sure everyone sees that. And maybe it's a way to run Crayley out of town. Oh, she, her expertise is in um, study of brain processes related to addiction. Oh, great! And it surely will have an impact on our departments, programs, and other departments. You know, if you if you look back at the relationship between neuroscience and psychology at Colgate, neuroscience had its origin in the psychology department. Bill Edmonston, uh, a, a retired professor, uh, was trained in clinical um, hypnosis, but saw was somehow had the insight to bring neuroscience to Colgate. And Colgate had the second neuroscience um, degree program for undergraduates in the country, um, established in 1976, I think, right around there. Um, Ever since then, neuroscience and psychology have had a very healthy relationship, and that's not true at at many other colleges and universities. Hmm. If you talk to the faculty in our department, I know you interviewed Carrie Keating uh, recently. In fact, I I listened to that podcast. You would have heard someone talking about the value of neuroscience, even though her area of research is is social developmental psychology. Um, there's that healthy relationship across faculty. There are collaborations within our program. 
Now, looking forward, the, 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 the New Brain Institute that will develop will even broaden the ability to collaborate across disciplines, likely attracting people in other divisions outside the sciences, say those who study language or music um, or the arts in, in, and biology. And, and there already are collaborations with um, people in physics and biology. So I, I think that that new, in, that new Ho supported institute will um, broaden even further those kind of interdisciplinary relationships, which will be a wonderful thing for students um, and, uh, and a wonderful thing for faculty. One of the great things about teaching at a place like Colgate that values research and teaching equally is that faculty can also continue to be students for the rest of their careers, developing and broadening their interests. That certainly happened to me. I know it's happened to uh, my spouse, Ellen. Um, and by the way, Carrie Keating deserves so much credit for pushing and not giving up on um, this notion of, of an MBB. Um, she, she really works some magic with that. And, and the rest of us had thought, this is never gonna happen. So kudos to Carrie. <laughs> Uh, in addition to your work uh, understanding the brain's systems related to eating and drinking, your studies have also grown to include um, studies of psychotropic drugs in the brain and um, various uh, medications like that. So I'm curious how you ended up moving from drinking and eating to the study of psychiatric medication. Yeah, well, I have a couple character flaws that have helped me make that move. One is that I get I get bored with myself easily. It, it doesn't always happen quickly. Sometimes it takes a couple of decades <laughs> for me to get bored. But then I also had a couple of experiences that kind of came back and haunted me. I, I don't know what other word to use. So my, my postdoc at Cornell Medical College, I said was in psychiatry, but I was working in an animal facility where um, there were a wide variety of animals from mice, rats, rabbits, monkeys being uh, studied. But we had regular seminars at the animal uh, labs with clinical psychiatrists, uh, clinical psychologists and psychiatrists. And I learned that I could teach about brain and physiology and behavior to, to students by using mental health issues as a springboard. You know, it's, it's not always easy to go into an intro psych course and say, I'm gonna to talk to you about neurons in the brain now and have people say, oh boy, that's fascinating. Um, but if you say, I'm gonna to talk to you about a problem you all know about and that is depression um, or something you know, even more perhaps bizarre like psychosis, and I'm gonna use those problems to take you into the brain and see how brain may be dysfunctional in, during psychosis. So I did that for a long time at Colgate. I, I just used that as a springboard. And then after, um, after becoming, I guess, a bit, I don't know what, a bit stalled in the lab in terms of knowing what direction to go in with studies in eating and drinking. Um, 
I started thinking about doing some kind of work scholarship that would reach a broader audience. And while I'd been teaching courses in psychopharmacology, I was learning a lot about the use of psychiatric medications and had a, a new colleague at Colgate, Rebecca Shiner, who was trained as a clinical psychologist who could have conversations with me about how humans were treated with psychotherapy or um, medications or both. And I realized that I had taught long enough that I could actually do some writing that would be useful educating people who aren't at Colgate um, about the benefits and risks or the value of using psychiatric medications or not. I had become a behavioral pharmacologist because I used so many drugs in my research, mm. not recreationally, but in my research. And to use drugs as research tools, you really need to know what those tools are doing. And um, so it was easy for me to read about psychiatric medications and understand what those tools are doing. And that took me to, reading, uh, to writing two books in part because I love to write. I've always loved to write. And I'd never written a book. And, I, and I, because I was boring myself writing journal articles, I said, Crayley, I wonder if you can write a book. Do you have the ability to write a book? That's a very different, much more, in some ways, more challenging task. So that, that's a very long-winded answer to your question. I. Um, I, I wrote a draft of a book in psychopharmacology. I, I, I contacted an editor at Nor Norton, W.W. Uh, Norton, and she said, well, we don't, we're not interested in that book, but you can write a book we are interested in. <laughs> and oh, I said, no. what are you talking about? You just told me no. And she said, well, let me, let me see your syllabus for intro psych at Colgate. So I, I, I showed her that and she said, that's the book we want. So. My mother having raised no fool, I said, well, that's a step into the publishing world. So I wrote that book for them. And then I wrote, five years later, I wrote the book I really wanted to write. <laughs> uh, and that turned out, that delay was really good because that second book was much better than it would have been oh. had I written it eight years. What, previous. What's the title of that book? The more recent one is, <laughs> hell, I don't know. Let's see, I got to look it up. Psychopharmacology problem solving. <laughs> so I, I am curious, what defines a psycho, I guess, is it, is it psychotropic drug? Is it, yeah. uh, is it a psychiatric medication? Well, I don't know the terminology here. Yeah, that, that's a good question. So the word psychotropic basically would describe any drug that has the ability to change behavior or thinking or the relationship between thinking and behavior. Or have psychotropic drug would have effects on psychological processes, which typically are expressed through behavior. Um, for pharmacologists, pharmacology just refers to drugs more broadly. So if, if I have any knowledge at all in pharmacology, it's mostly about psychotropic drugs. So, so recreational drugs, the drugs people use to get a buzz, have fun, um, those would fall in the category of psychotropic drugs. Okay. 
So if Google serves me well, um, I, according to Google, uh, the first psychotropic drug to be mass produced was Thorazine in the 1950s. Uh, I'm curious how psychiatric medicines have evolved since then. How, how have things changed since the 50s and, and the invention of Thorazine, I guess? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and it, you know, it really gets at the heart of why I decided to even write about those topics. So you mentioned Thorazine. Thorazine is the trade name for a drug called chlorpromazine. Mm. Chlorpromazine was discovered by accident to improve symptoms of schizophrenia in many patients in the 1950s. And up until that time, there, there was no useful therapy for treating schizophrenia. People with psychosis in the 1950s generally spent the rest of their lives in state mental institutions. So when chlorpromazine comes along, suddenly there's the release. There's a way to treat people with those symptoms, many of whom could leave those hospitals and hopefully go home and remain functional. Chlorpromazine, Thorazine, is still a useful medication today. So we're 70, almost 70 years down the road. And when you realize that a drug like Thorazine Although it can be effective, it doesn't work in all people with schizophrenia. And it, has, it can have some terrible side effects. That um, Why would a drug like that still be useful 70 years down the road? It, th there's a long answer to that question, but the, the answer typically reveals that, well, there hasn't been enough learned about what's going on in the brain of people with so-called mental disorders mm -hmm. And there hasn't been much learned about how drugs used to treat them actually are altering the brain. So that you know, what, what a pharmacologist would say about a drug like, let's say uh, Prozac, that it's known that Prozac can inhibit a process related to serotonin transmission in the brain which will enhance the availability of that neurotransmitter serotonin. Well, Prozac does that, but the question of whether doing that in a human brain is the cause of improving their symptoms, that's an open question to this day. And Prozac's been around now for, I think, 30 years. Hmm. So the, the, the strategies for drug development have not made a great deal of advances in what would be called novel therapeutics, novel drug treatments. That's been a, a source of frustration and, and it's acknowledged. It's something I've written about, but plenty of others have written about it. And um, it's, it's led to an emphasis on developing different strategies for drug development and also an emphasis for making advances in neuroscience that can reveal what's wrong, what's dysfunctional in the brain of someone with psychosis, what's dysfunctional in the brain with someone with depression, if, if anything, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so the, the question you ask is, is, a, is a fundamentally important issue in contemporary clinical psychopharmacology. Um, so I'm glad you asked. 
What do you think has been the most successful psychiatric medicine since the invention uh, of Thorazine? And I guess, is there one who has done that has done the most harm? Wow. That's a tough one. Um, I'm not, you know, I guess the, the, a reasonable way to try to answer that would say, well, can you identify a drug that has benefits without risks? And the answer is no. All those psychiatric medications have risks. All you need to do is watch a few television ads. <laughs> see what, you know, yes. 45 seconds of a, of a one minute ad is identifying potential for harm. Um, that's one way to come at it. That might not be the best way. Another way to come at that question would be to say, well, is there a, is there a diagnosable disorder that is unusually successfully treated with a medication? Mm -hmm. And that um, very well might be attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I think the, I think the last numbers I saw on that were something like 90% of people properly diagnosed with ADHD um, respond favorably to drugs that are either amphetamine-like in their effects or more uh, recent drugs that have like partial amphetamine-like actions. Mm -hmm. One of them is named, a uh, trade name is Stratera. Um, when 90%, you know, I, I don't think there's any other diagnosable disorder where you could claim that 90% of the patients respond favorably to, a med, to any one medication. That may be due to the fact that disorders are mislabeled. Mm. So that there may be a variety of type, subtypes of depression that all get labeled major depression. So there may be some people diagnosed with major depression who actually have quite different problems from one another. And that's why 90% of them don't improve to the same medication. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to sound like I'm heralding the use of uh, psychiatric medications. I, I certainly have never been accused of doing that. So let me give you a different example. Bulimia nervosa, the, the, the disorder that's relatively uncommon where the common characteristics are binge eating and purging. Um, that is a disorder that is best, seems to respond best to non-drug therapy, including cognitive behavioral therapy. So um, just as some people might, or some so-called disorders might respond better to medication, others might respond better to talk therapies, and some would respond better to combinations of some sort of behavioral therapy and some sort of medication in different phases of treatment. Are I there think, any, any? I don't think I'm. I'm not sure I answered your question. I've, but I you hope have. I've successfully I've, ev evaded. I guess my other part of it was just, you know, is there is there a single uh, medication that you've seen through these years that you wish had never been made? Like, was it has it done more harm than good? Yeah, <clears throat> I think it's possible. And again, you know, people trained in clinical work, I, I'm not a clinician, might disagree with me about this. It might be possible to point to the so-called benzodiazepine drugs, the drugs like Librium and Valium and um, 
Let's see, what's another? Rohypnol, Xanax, I think is a benzodiazepine. Those drugs have, but that category of drugs have been around for, again, since the 1950s to treat anxiety disorders and sometimes depression. And they are, have a serious risk of addiction. And in the, in the relatively not careful use of them, they may have created, as you say, more problems than you'd like to see. Are there any promising psychiatric medications on the horizon that you have heard of or are I, you know, I think about, you know, you hear in the news a lot about microdosing psychedelics for depression, things like that. Is there anything that you've seen um, recently that, you know, is kind of the next big thing? Yeah. Well, there, there has been enough interest in using so-called recreational drugs as therapeutic that I think even my alma mater, Johns Hopkins, has established an institute to study that. I can't remember what they call the Institute offhand. Uh, so examples of that include some hallucinogens like psilocybin or LSD. Uh, another example is uh, a fairly well-known drug used to anesthetize animals. That is ketamine. Ketamine was the drug that um, the previous president was talking about one day on a news conference. Um, saying, um, oh, we ordered a bunch of that because it seems to be useful in treating people with depression who have not responded to other medications. That, that there is some research demonstrating that and it continues to attract some interest in looking at um, drugs like those that have been used recreationally that have bad reputations. Ketamine was referred to um, Ketamine was a drug often stolen out of laboratories to use by young people uh, who were interested in recreating with downers. I don't know one, why a person would want to recreate with a downer. All you need to do is pick up a newspaper. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or watch a press conference. Until recently. Yeah, so, oh, but there are other examples. So those are some specific drugs that have been in the news. But there are other approaches that I don't think have quite yet led to um, a breakthrough drug, but are likely close. One approach is to develop um, a medication that doesn't directly mimic a neurotransmitter in the brain or doesn't directly block it, but instead, facilitates the activity of the natural transmitter. Um, the term given to that kind of drug is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it uh, and probably wish I hadn't, uh, allos an allosteric modulator. So like a modulating of a natural process drug. Uh, there's some promise there with a few drugs um, they're still in development, and, and I don't know that any one of them is ready to hit the market. And of course, there's also interest in um, um, marijuana or uh, synthetic chemicals that might resemble marijuana in, in some way. Uh, and people have, 
people have argued in one place or another that you could basically solve any psychological issue you could talk about with marijuana. Well, I was in college in the 60s and people acted that way then. And, and, uh, and I don't think it led us very far, but there is, there's considerable research to, um, to investigate a role for that, uh, for, for using drugs that might alter endogenous cannabinoids or to use synthetic cannabinoids as a way to uh, treat depression or psychosis, but um, it's not clear yet, or, or addiction. It's, it's not clear yet that, that those are gonna be used anytime soon in a widespread manner, in an FDA approved manner, but there's hope. I guess uh, on that same subject, I understand you're a bit of a rock musician. Oh yeah. Hell <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're in a band called Danger Boy, is that it? Yeah. And with uh, some other Colgate faculty? Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Because that's what I really would rather be doing. I love you retiring. Is that going to be the full-time uh, gig? Oh, no. I can still play drums better than I can think. And uh, all you need to do is ask anybody who knows me. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> well, I was, in, I was in a band in high school. And I've been playing on and off ever since. And um, our, our younger son is a professional musician, so he's living my dream. So even though I've had, I've had a dream of a career, um, there's another dream that I'd just soon spend a little more time with. And I never thought I'd see the day when I'd be able to play in a rock band with Colgate faculty because of, some of them have showed up here, but they're afraid to reveal themselves. But Aaron Robertson in mathematics and Frank Fry in biology they they were willing to reveal themselves. So we, we've had this trio for the last 10, 10, 10 or 12 years called Danger Boy. For, for, <laughs> we are the least three da <laughs> least dangerous people you'd ever run into. If we're going to hurt anybody, it's going to be ourselves. And um, But what, what we started doing was playing music that we knew students were listening to. So back in the days when it was easier for students to organize their own parties, uh, much easier than it is now, for better or worse. I don't want to make too much of a judgment on that, except to say that there was more work for musicians back in the days when students did more partying. So um, what's, what's interesting about doing that sort of thing, that, that wasn't really clear to me until recent years is that the business of being a teacher is very much the same as the business of being a performing musician. For one, teaching is a performance. And certainly performing musicians in front of a live audience are performers. And the only way that works well is if you know your audience. So you, you will be a failure as a teacher if if you misjudge the level of your audience in that particular 100 or 200 level class. The same is true, we, if we were to be hired to play at a fraternity party and played 1970s classic rock, maybe five students would really think that was great and, and the rest of the people there would not hire us again. So you know your audience and you address them and if you do that successfully, you feed off of them. 
And, you know, musicians talk about that all the time, that they play better when there's an audience that they know is engaged. A drummer knows an audience is engaged. I'm, I'm the drummer in the band. I'm the only valuable musician in the band. <laughs> because <laughs> I make people dance. Me and the bassist make people dance, right? When you see people dancing in time to what you're playing, you know you've got them. In the classroom, when you see people make an eye contact, so enthralled that they put their pencil down and they're simply listening and then have answers to questions that make clear they've read. You know you've got your audience. So I, I've begun to see those, those similarities and um, missed them for decades. Just didn't know. I was just playing music because I was an angry young man <laughs> and wanted to thrash about on, on the drum kit. Well, you've made it to question 13. Okay. Congratulations. So this is actually a very simple one, very straightforward. This one wrote itself. You are F. Scott Crayley. <laughs> What's the F? <laughs> I had no idea you were going to ask that. <laughs> there, there are two answers. One, the most recent answer, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives uh, in Hubbardsville. And uh, we were having a conversation with a third person. And the third person there said, what's the F stand for? And my friend said, it stands for effing. And if you don't, if you don't catch the reference, it's because you don't have a filthy mind. <laughs> <laughs> the F stands for Frederick. And I was sent to school thinking my name was Scott because my parents called me that. <laughs> and then people in school started asking for Frederick and I got annoyed. So I started signing my papers, F Scott. Ah. And it stuck. And it, it created one of my favorite memories. We had a teacher in a British lit course at my public school. And she used to pick on people. She was brutal. I mean, really brutal. If she found out you had trouble reading, she made you stand up and read out loud. So one day, she's handing back papers we had written one at a time, looking to make a remark to each individual in the class to humiliate them. But she got around to me and said, F. Scott Crayley. What do you and F. Scott Fitzgerald have in common? So I said, talent. <laughs> <laughs> she hated that. She never, picked, she never picked on me again. And then I had the problem of how the hell am I going to live up to that? Because I, I had no self-confidence that I had any talent at all. And um, I imagine that the way I've answered your questions makes clear that I don't have any talent. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. You clearly have uh, some humor talent, that is for sure. <laughs> Professor F. Scott Crayley, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the podcast today. It was really a pleasure having you here. Thanks, um, thanks for asking me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Thanks for such great questions. They were terrific. Oh, well, thank you. Um, tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, for those listening, if you have any other questions um, about you know, the work of Professor Crayley, send them my way. Uh, send them to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number, and I'll be happy to get them answered for you. Uh, and until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries.
Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.